Welcome to another podcast of the Apologist Bookshelf. Hi, I'm Gary Zacharias. The book I'd like to share with you today is called The Case for Life, and the author is Scott Klusendorf. Now, Scott has uh, appeared to us via Zoom at our church and did an excellent job. I tell you, everybody raved about him when he presented The Case for Life. And so this book covers a lot of the same material that he talked about. And to just give you an idea on the back cover, uh, one person, Randy Alcorn, said he's a best-selling author, said, Scott Klusendorf has produced a marvelous resource that will equip pro-lifers to communicate more creatively and effectively as they engage our culture. J.P. Moreland, uh, quite a, an author and speaker and philosopher, he called this book, a veritable feast of helpful information about pro-life issues. He calls it the finest resource about these matters I have seen. And I agree. It, this is a, an excellent book. If you are online and engaging in discussions with people there or just in person, whatever it is, you need this book. It's called The Case for Life. Wonderful chapters, uh, good sections in here. The first part of the book has to do with clarifying the debate, making it clear, and then establishing a foundation for the debate, and then answering objections persuasively. And another section called Pro-Life Christians Teach and Equip. What I'd like to do is to take um, a few of the objections, starting in chapter 13. He calls it the hard cases objection, and it's about the word rape. Um Suppose a woman is raped. If she gives birth, a child a reminder of the rape. Do you think abortion is wrong in that case? Oh, that's a hard issue, isn't it? So he, he makes it so clear, though. He said, well, we agree that the child would provoke unpleasant memories. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But Scott says, how do you think a civil society should treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? He said, well, what about this? He said, imagine I have a two-year-old. His father's a rapist. His mother's on antidepressant drugs. At least one, one time a day, the sight of that child sends her back into depression. Would it be okay to kill the toddler if doing so would make the mother feel better? And so it gets down to the really crux of the issue, doesn't it? How should we treat innocent human beings who remind us of a painful event? And of course, that's what the unborn is, an innocent human being. He said, if the unborn are human, then killing them so others can feel better is wrong. Hardship doesn't justify homicide. And then I like what he does. He says, now, admittedly, I don't like the way my answer feels because I know the mother may suffer consequences for doing the right thing. But sometimes the right thing to do isn't the easy thing to do. So I appreciate him saying, this is not easy. This is difficult. This would be a very tough thing for the mom to go through. So instead of being real blasé about it. I mean, he says, yes, that would be a struggle. Now, sometimes he says, I get people that um, are, he calls them crusaders. They, they just want to score debate points. So he appeals to the hard case of rape, but he's not entirely truthful. He's, he's actually um, wanting to justify abortion during all nine months of pregnancy. But instead of defending that, he goes to the emotional appeal of rape. So Scott says, sometimes I ask this question. Okay, I'm going to grant for the sake of discussion that we keep abortion legal in cases of rape. So Scott says, I'll give you that. What if, what if I give you that you can have abortions in the case of rape? And here comes the crucial question. 
Will you join me in supporting legal restrictions on abortions done for socioeconomic reasons? And he says, that's the overwhelming percentage of abortions. And he says, almost every single time, the answer is no. In other words, no, I don't want to take the part you give me and have me give you the others. And Scott says, then why did you bring up the rape, the rape idea except to mislead us into thinking that you support abortion only in the hard cases? So obviously this person is pro-abortion up and down the way. Here's another issue. That he, now I'm going to skip ahead to the next chapter. It's called the I don't like you objection. Men can't get pregnant and other personal attacks. So he calls these personal attacks. He uses as an example of uh, a personal attack, I guess Roseanne Barr had an HBO special at one time. She said, you know who else I can't stand is them people who are anti-abortion. I hate them. They're ugly, old, geeky, hideous men. They just don't want nobody to have an abortion because they want you to keep spitting out kids so they can molest them. Wow. So Scott says, okay, all right, Roseanne. So maybe you're right. Maybe pro-lifers are just a bunch of hideous old men who molest kids. How does this refute the pro-life claim that abortion takes the life of a de defenseless child? It doesn't. The attack is on the people, not on the argument. And you're going to hear that so many times. You'll get attacked. You're narrow-minded. You're a bigot. You're a, a man. You're hideous. Uh, all this kind of stuff. But notice that's not an attack on the argument. I've actually been in, in a uh, debate online with somebody who said that very thing. You shouldn't be talking about this because you're a man. Hmm. So uh, have, having to be a man, what, what's the problem there? Well, let, let's talk about that gender issue. I want to go to that next. I'm flipping pages here. Men are told you can't get pregnant, so leave the abortion issue to women. He says, of course, that is sexist, but he said there are some flaws with this. He mentions three flaws. Here's number one. Arguments don't have genders. People do. Many pro-life women use the same arguments that pro-life men do. So somebody who's in favor of abortion needs to answer the arguments without attacking the gender. Okay, that makes good sense to me. He says, secondly, if men are not allowed to speak on abortion, right? We're, we're told, I was told online, you should be quiet. He says, really? He says, then Roe v. Wade, which is a Supreme Court case that legalizes abortion, was bad law. Why? It was nine men who decided it. So maybe abortion choice advocates should call for the dismissal of all male lawyers working for Planned Parenthood and the ACLU on abortion-related issues. So notice what he says is really going on here. They mean no man can speak on abortion unless he agrees with us. Yeah. Here's the third thing he says, uh, kind of shoots down that argument about men can't get pregnant so they should shut up. He said, well, lesbians and postmenopausal women can't naturally get pregnant, so do they have to be quiet? So I think he's kind of shot that one down pretty effectively. What about this issue? It's my body. I'll decide. This is chapter 15. It's my body. And they've come up with a new, well, I, should, I shouldn't say they, this is an older essay, but here's a woman, Judith Jarvis Thompson, a 1971 essay called A Defense of Abortion, and she actually concedes that the, the unborn are human. 
But he said, but she says that no woman should be forced to use her body to sustain the life of another human being. And so she has this imagination thing. Says, you wake up in the morning and you find yourself back to back in bed with an unconscious violinist, very famous. And he's got a fatal kidney ailment. And you are the only one that has the right blood type that could help. So they've kidnapped you and they plugged his circulatory system into yours so your kidneys can extract poisons from his blood. And they said, well, sorry, but that's the way it is. If we unplug you now, that'll kill him. But it's only for nine months. Then he'll recover. And then he'll be unplugged. So is that morally incumbent on you to accede to this? He said, well, that's nice if you did, but not for nine months. So it says that you would regard this as outrageous. So her claim is, this is what Klusendorf is going to get to, just as one may withhold support and detach himself from the violinist, so too the mother may withhold support and detach herself from the child. Now, of course, it all works if there's a parallel here. If the pregnancy is similar to the mother being hooked up to a violinist, and he said, are they really similar in morally relevant ways? Well, he says, no. He says there are good reasons to reject these so-called parallels. First, we may not have the obligation to sustain, sustain strangers who are unplugged to us unnaturally, but we do have a duty to sustain our own offspring. This is not a, a stranger unnaturally hooked up. It's a mother and her child hooked up in a natural way. Greg Kokold at this point said, what if the mother woke to find herself surgically connected to her own child? Now, no mom is going to cut that life support system for a two-year-old. Okay, so <clears throat> that's I think that's a strike against that so-called parallel. Secondly, the violinist is an intruder, but not the case with the child. He or she is precisely where that person belongs at that point in his development. If the child doesn't belong in the womb, where does he belong? Somebody said, you know, if a woman looks upon her child as a burglar or an intruder, that's already an evil, even if she refrains from killing him or her. Here's a third problem with that violinist story. Thompson tries to justify abortion as just withholding of support. But it's way more than that. It's the killing of a child through dismemberment or poison or crushing. So that one's not a very good argument, is it? There are more arguments against that, and I'm going to move move on beyond that. Um, what if the is the child a rapist? Is abortion self-defense? You're getting rid of a child that's attacked you. Uh, so this this has all sorts of things. Is the the book uh, in this chapter is the right to bodily autonomy absolute? Really, is it absolute? You never have anything that can uh, get between the mother and this child, bodily autonomy. We hear that a lot. Okay, so uh, this is the book that I would suggest you taking a look at. It's so powerful. Um, easy to read. I hope you understood from that how simple it is to get through and to take these, what people call about, call their, you know, such a complicated issue and boil it down, make it simple. I remember when um, Barack Obama was running for, running for president, somebody asked him about abortion now he said, oh, that's above my pay grade. Well, the implication is this is so difficult, it is so tricky, it is so hard to wrestle with 
that we should just let the women decide, you know, if the mom wants to be the mom or not. Well, Klusendorf over and over again makes it so simple. It all comes down to, is this a human being? And if so, we don't kill defenseless, innocent human beings. Pretty simple. Pro-life advocates, after all, are contending that elective abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human being. So it's just one question. This really simplifies the abortion controversy. Here's the question. Is the unborn a member of the human family? If so, if trying to kill that person to benefit others is a serious moral wrong. So that's what he boils this down to. And he has this thing called uh, trot out the toddler. In other words, if you think it's okay to do it to a unborn, would you do it to a two-year-old? And in many cases, that's not the case. Like, have you heard the argument that, well, women should be able to abort a child because it can be so expensive to raise it? Well, you wouldn't use that argument if you had a two-year-old and say, you know, she's starting to get expensive. Maybe we should be able to terminate her. Anyway, I'm, I'm going off on other parts of the book, but I know you'd like the book. Again, it's called The, the Case for Life, Scott Klusendorf. Let's see, it's about 250 pages, just full of good information. So I hope you got something out of this, and I thank you for joining me, and I'll see you next time.